entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump ordered a strike on Qasem Soleimani, killing him. This could lead to war, but we are not at war, and we probably are going to avoid it. But we'll get into all of that and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. Thank you very much for being here. I really thought we would just jump into, at this time of year, the back and forth over the sham impeachment. But no, we have a pretty earth-shattering news, um, a big decision, and one of the biggest in terms of foreign policy of the Trump administration, certainly right up there with the uh, trade dispute with China, with the extension of President Trump's hand to Kim Jong-un of North Korea, Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps' Quds Force, their external operations arm, has been killed. He was killed near Baghdad International Airport by a drone strike, one that was clearly ordered from the very top. The White House gave the go-ahead for this. President Trump himself had to approve this, had to decide to take out Qasem Soleimani. This has resulted in hysterics from the left, uh, the anti-Trump Twitter stuff that you would see right now if you were to log on or what you would hear in much of the news media is not surprising, but it's stunning nonetheless. People are saying that we are at war. They are claiming that this was an enormous and reckless blunder by Trump. And these are the same people that think that everything Trump does is an enormous and reckless blunder. I'm here to tell you that they are wrong. They are very wrong. Qasem Soleimani was responsible, first and foremost, for our purposes. What what matters most to us as Americans? One, uh, he was responsible for plotting now, according to numerous reports and from the very top of the administration, including Secretary of State Pompeo, attacks, imminent attacks on U.S. interests. We don't know more than that, but... He wasn't in the Baghdad area because he was on his way to a nice vacation on the north coast of Africa or something. He decided that it was going to be retaliation for what Trump did to shut down the embassy protests, uh, which weren't really protests. It was an effort to try and overrun a U.S. facility, and it could have gotten completely out of hand if we had not responded with firmness, if Trump had not sent additional Marines to secure the embassy and put a tremendous amount of pressure on the Iraqi government to actually be allies and do something about this. That's the point we'll have to return to here. But Qasem Soleimani was planning operations against U.S. interests. And we could have, I mean, if you want to take this position, uh, we could have taken the, the position that waiting was the better thing to do. Um, He could have waited until Soleimani sent a dump truck uh, packed with explosives, perhaps, into an embassy or ordered a Shia militia entirely funded, trained and backed by the mullahs in Tehran to capture, torture and kill U.S. personnel in Iraq. And then we could have responded more forcefully because I'm sure those were the kind of operations under consideration for Soleimani. 
If Iran escalates, my friends, so will our response. There's a very important lesson here from all of this, and it's also taken from the history of what Soleimani did in the region, specifically in Iraq as well. This guy has been listed as a terrorist since 2005. He has been involved in spreading the theocratic insanity and oppression and tyranny of the mullahs of Tehran, the Islamic revolution of the Shia theocracy in Iran to countries throughout the region, has been backing terrorist groups that have struck as far as a Jewish center in Buenos Aires. I mean, they will go after people anywhere all over the world using their Hezbollah proxies, using other terrorist entities. And we keep hearing from the left that we should wait for them to uh, change their ways, work with them, bring them more in the international community. And we'll get into the Obama administration failed response in a moment. Um, but here's what I just want to want you to take away from this first and foremost. I think the lesson here is that if you are a leader who orders the murder of U.S. soldiers as part of a clandestine proxy war outside your own borders, we will find you and we will kill you. It's a very important and worthwhile lesson. And it is one that Qasem Soleimani has now learned, perhaps you could say the hard way. That should be restored in the perception of our enemies and our allies all over the world. Everyone should know what the response will be to killing Americans. Qasem Soleimani, as I discussed with you yesterday before this happened, remember we were talking about EFPs and the murder of U.S. soldiers. We've been discussing that here on this show. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps came up with the strategy and even manufactured the devices and showed Shia militia members in, in Iraq how to use them. And they, they weren't trying to just gain a, a hand over the ruling regime. It was, it was specifically kill American soldiers, bleed them, wound them, cut off their arms, cut off their legs, kill them. That was the plan from the IRGC. We were not at war with Iran. We had not invaded Iran killing our people while we were engaged in, at that point, stabilization operations, trying to keep the lights on, get the sewage running, build some schools in Iraq. Whether you think that's a good thing for us to do or not, I will leave to talk about it on another day. But they were trying to maim, trying to wound, trying to kill our soldiers, and Soleimani ordered operations personally, directly, that killed an estimated five to 600 U.S. soldiers. Realistically, it was probably double that. It's a lot of bodies. That's a lot of folded flags coming home to American families. Gold Star families told sorry. Dad or mom's never coming home because of this evil you-know-what. And now he's gone. I've got to tell you, this is a good day for America. And I know that the response could be ferocious from Iran, at least in the short term. People are overstating this, and I will get into that uh, to some extent. I just wanted to, to declare, because we're going to talk about this a lot today on the show. This is now overshadowing everything else. The question is, are we going to war with Iran after Afghanistan and Iraq and our quasi-war in Syria? Uh, are we going to go into an all-out conflict with Iran? I think that that gets far ahead of where we are right now. And I, I don't agree with people like Bolton who are already saying, I hope this is a step toward regime change. 
Because if we start getting involved in regime change in Iran, then we get involved in what comes after this regime. It's our responsibility, nation building, peacekeeping operations, holding back the sectarian hatreds that stretch back centuries over a millennium in some cases in this region. I mean, they've been hating each other for quite some time. It's not going to stop anytime soon. We don't want that. We don't want to be in charge of Iran. We don't want to be the ones that topple the Iranian government. If the Iranian people take it upon themselves to finally get it together and oust these tyrants, good for them. But in the meantime, we should not be afraid of our own shadow here on the world stage. And we'll discuss the way that this is such a clear repudiation of what had become normalized under the Obama administration. President Obama had normalized bowing and apologizing, going all over the world and expressing this point of view that America is often the bad guy, has a lot to be sorry for. Meanwhile, if we're really doing if we're doing, you know, points on a board here, the rest of the world should be thankful for America every night they go to sleep, every day they wake up. Not saying we're perfect, but if you're going to start saying, what do we do that's good and what do we do that's bad? How have we helped the world and how have we harmed the world? It's not even close. We're not perfect, but we're a lot closer than any other country that has complete military superiority over any adversary on the planet. We're still there. The Chinese are catching up to us, but we are still there. Absolute military superiority. And I think we have to have a reminder of that here. Because it is true, and you're going to see a lot of people going on television in particular. TV tends to draw the worst national security analysts. TV tends to be the place where you see, especially if you turn on CNN uh, or MSNBC, you will see individuals who have no sense of history, horrific strategic judgment, have been wrong time and time again in the past, because there is a degree of prediction here. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, nobody knows what's coming next, but I do know that we have to be vigilant and prepared. But if you want to be prepared properly, you have to understand the nature of the threat and the likelihood of where you're going to get hit and how. So you're going to see endless speculation on TV. Uh, most of it from people who know very little of Iraq, of the Iraq war, of the Middle East, of national security. Nobody really knows what is coming next. And... We have to just be wise and vigilant in the meantime. Beyond that, we're in a waiting game. The national security apparatus in this country already has things in motion that people like me and you who aren't in the know. I used to be in the know. I used to work for the CIA's Office of Iraq Analysis. I deployed to Iraq twice. Uh, now we just assume or, or have to take our best guess at what may be happening behind the scenes of the most fearsome military apparatus the world has ever seen, which is the United States military. And this is where I, I have to break with those who say that we are about to be drawn into war by Iran. How is Iran going to draw us into a war exactly, and why would they do that? If they use proxies or cutouts to hit us, there's a very important difference here from the war on terror, as we called it for a while, and then the Obama administration, of course, I think wanted to call it the overseas contingency operations against violent extremism. And I'm maybe only missing a word or two there. That was more or less with the Obama administration, because I was there when Obama took over. I was in the CIA, actually working in Afghanistan at the time. And while we look at the counterterrorism fight of the past, one of the biggest frustrations we had is, okay, 
you get hit by Al-Qaeda. Let's say you get hit by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. If they were to take out a plane, to a mass casualty attack, we can respond by trying to take out some of their fighters somewhere. Maybe we blow up a training facility, but how do we really hit them where it hurts? It's not easy. You're fighting an enemy that obeys no rules, no laws of war, has neither decency nor fixed address. Iran has a fixed address. Iran cannot hide. The Iranian regime is in no position, and it knows it, to go toe-to-toe with the United States government. So when people say things like, well, what would happen? I'm seeing so much of this. If the Iranians assassinated a you know, four-star general on U.S. soil, well, first of all, you're making all kinds of leaps that are not that are not similar to the situation here. So let's just say that if we're going to make these comparisons, we should be exact in what we're talking about. Qasem Soleimani was acting as an enemy combatant in a country that was not his own, plotting to attack U.S. interests in an area where we have military force and we are fighting a war still. We are still in the midst of operations in the Iraq and Syria theater to try and defeat the Islamic State, to try to hold back Shia militias. So it is a theater of conflict. And this guy was operating with impunity, impunity for years. Why? Because we're so afraid of what Iran will do in response? Oh, Iran will shut down the Straits of Hormuz. Let me tell you something. The difference when you're dealing with a nation state actor, especially one that does not yet have nuclear weapons, thank God. And no thanks to the Obama administration, by the way, and we will get there. The difference here is that we can decide very specifically what the price will be and how we will exact that price from the Iranians. People say, what if they shut down the Strait of Hormuz with the missile strikes? What if they hit oil tankers? Okay, well, then they'll have the entire international community legitimately upset at them because that will shut down 20 to 25 percent of the world's oil reserves for at least a period of time. Good news is because of fracking, which Democrats hate, by the way, America is the world's global energy superpower now. No thanks to leftists and socialists in this country trying to prevent us from getting to where we are today saying that we're all going to have dirty drinking water and, you know, we're all going to die. Because they always say this, we're all going to die unless you do what the crazy, ignorant leftists say. But if the Iranians were to, and this is the most obvious place, the most obvious strategic target, go after tankers in the Strait of Hormuz. And this has been a concern, by the way, for decades. Well, we already had the tanker war with them. You can look this one up back in the 80s. This has happened before. Uh, We've already shown the Iranians, look, you guys better back off. And The Iranians know that the price that they will pay will be extreme. Whatever they do to us, we are in a position to do back to them tenfold. They are not in a position to do the same to us. They're not able to. This is. And and so at first I said, let's look at how this situation played out with Qasem Soleimani in Iraq and not start coming up with these crazy comparisons. Oh, well, what if they assassinated, you know, somebody in the Pentagon tomorrow? Is that okay? Obviously, that's that's different in a whole variety of ways. But apart from that. They're Iran and we're America. There's an asymmetry between our power, and that dictates much of what is going to happen and should happen in this relationship. At the end of the day, they can't do the things that we can do, which is why they don't do them. Keep in mind that if they could, they would eradicate us and they would eradicate Israel. They're not in a position to do so. 
whether we respond in crushing fashion to whatever they do next is up to the leadership of this country. Provocation after provocation. We told them, stop. They sabotaged tankers. They they brought down a drone. They killed U.S. soldiers in Iraq. They spread their terror throughout the Middle East. They've been assisting and backing Hezbollah and even Hamas in order to attack Israel. Hamas being Sunni, but the the Shia terrorists of Iran, the the relationship has cooled a bit, but they'll work with Sunni, Sunni Hamas as long as they're going after the little Satan, as they call it, of Israel. And we are, of course, the great Satan. We are not at war. I don't think we're going to war. We should avoid war. But we're also not suffering in silence anymore. Qasem Soleimani is dead, and that is a good thing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I can't talk too much about the nature of the threats, but the American people should know that President Trump's decision to remove Qasem Soleimani from the battlefield saved American lives. There's no doubt about that. Uh, he was actively plotting in the region to take actions, a big action, as he described it, that would have put dozens, if not hundreds, of American lives at risk. Uh, we know it was imminent. This was an intelligence-based uh, assessment uh, that drove our decision-making process. Uh, the American people also know the history of Qasem Soleimani, uh, hundreds of American lives on his hands, too. He was involved in the Beirut bombings. Uh, he'd, he'd orchestrated an attack right here in Washington, D.C. It ultimately mm-hmm. failed. Uh, this is a man who's put in American lives at risk for an awfully long time. And last night was the time that we needed to strike to make sure that this imminent attack that he was working actively uh, was disrupted. Or Trump could have waited. I think Trump made the right move. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've anticipated a wide range of possible responses, and we have done our level best under the direct guidance of the president to prepare for all of those possibilities. Uh, we, we hope the actual response, John, is that the Iraqi people will do what they've been doing for months. They'll demand that the Iraqi government give them freedom, prosperity, and sovereignty. We've, we've watched these protests over the last weeks. They weren't burning American flags. They were demanding that Iraqi political leadership uh, stop their kleptocracy, stop their uh, political shenanigans. And Qasem Soleimani was at the center of that. He was driving bad outcomes for the Iraqi people. He was causing many Muslims in the region to be killed. I saw last night, last night, there was dancing in the streets in parts of Iraq. We we have every expectation that people not only in Iraq, but in Iran will view the American action last night as giving them freedom. Qasem Soleimani was the action arm of the worst elements of the Iranian regime. He was the guy who was tasked with and unfortunately was quite adept at it because he's ruthless, because he was a true believer, and he was more efficient, better financed, better trained, and had more freedom of action in the region than any of his competitors. And now Qasem Soleimani is dead, as well as another senior senior Shia militia member. So I would say too bad, but as you know, this is actually... A big win for the good guys. Everyone should understand that. I want to get to what's coming next as far as I see it. And as I've told you, the proviso, I I know that no one knows exactly what is going to happen here, including, I think, the Iranians. They're figuring out right now because they didn't believe that this would be done. The Iranians had gotten used to, as I said, the normalization 
under the Obama administration. Yes, to a lesser extent under the Bush administration. I remember working Iraq under the Bush administration and some of these Shia militants. I'll see their names pop up today. You know, some of you who serve know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you remember Muqtada al-Sadr. You remember these other uh, the, the Shia militia leaders that were involved in specifically targeting U.S. soldiers because they viewed that as a way of getting more leverage for Iran inside of Iraq and pushing back on U.S. interests there. So they were killing our people. And there were conversations about what we should do. And the Bush administration had just been largely exhausted by that point. Once you came around to 2000 and late 2007, 2008, exhausted by just preventing Iraq from turning into a, a full-blown cauldron of sectarian civil war. That's it, it took some steps into that. I mean, at some points, it was effectively a civil war uh, along sectarian lines. And there was horrific violence going on, systemic violence in the streets of Baghdad, in the streets of Kirkuk, of Mosul, of Bakuba, cities all across the Iraqi theater. But the Bush administration did not have, quite honestly, the guts to go after someone like Qasem Soleimani, even though they knew that this guy was responsible for directing attacks or killing Americans. At what point does someone lose this facade of, oh, we can't touch him? The foreign policy intelligentsia up until now would have told you that Qasem Soleimani, to borrow from the movie The Departed, is a guy you can't touch. He was like a made guy in the Middle East. You couldn't touch him. Why? Because we we're so worried about the Iranian response? Um, because the Iranians will do bad things to us? The Iranians were already training all the worst terror groups in the region, assisting terror groups, providing safe haven for terrorists inside of Iran, uh, murdering people, torturing people, killing people, spreading explosives, spreading weapons, everything. How, how much worse, is, and trying to get nuclear weapons, how much worse is it really going to get? Oh, because the Iranians only fund and direct Hezbollah, for example, because the Iranians only fund and direct uh, the Houthi militants or Shia militias in Iraq. They are not to be held responsible for this. And this was one of the fundamental flaws. And this is why you're seeing so many people on the left making complete jackasses of themselves, calling this an assassination. It's not an assassination. This guy's a military combatant in a theater of war trying to kill our troops. If we can't kill him, you got to ask the question, why not? And the foreign policy so-called intelligentsia has been telling us for years and would have said before today, oh, my gosh, you can't kill Qasem Soleimani. Okay, so he has he has uh, a, a, the invincibility card. He can do anything he wants, up to and including ordering the killing of hundreds of U.S. soldiers. And we won't do anything in response. Why not? What what special invulnerability should be conferred on this guy? And it was for years. You had two presidents from both parties who just didn't have the stomach for doing what was necessary. And finally, Trump came along. Trump, who's supposed to know nothing about foreign policy, be such a, you know, a, a wild ignoramus on issues of, of global affairs. Trump comes along and says, enough. This is wrong. Um, this should not continue on as it is. 
Um, and you had two presidents in a row, as I said, were scared to do what was necessary. Trump wasn't willing to be the third such president. He did what was necessary. What was the alternative? Wait for Qasem Soleimani to conduct some kind of attack? We've already been in a period of escalation for a while. We've to, all the Iranians have to do is essentially stop being a crazy, belligerent nation. That's all the Iranian regime. And I, again, I do like to separate out. I feel badly for the you know, day-to-day -day Iranian people who are stuck, who are prisoners of these lunatics. I mean, many of them obviously are complicit in the regime, but there are a lot of them who aren't. And they're prisoners of these maniacs. But we can't allow the maniacs to get away with whatever they want to do against us and against allies in the region. We know that they have pressure points where they can hit us. And, I mean, you know, we could debate all day and never get anywhere. And whether Iraq was a good decision or not, I think in retrospect, it's very hard to justify the invasion of Iraq. But we did it. We're there. And that doesn't give the Iranians carte blanche to do whatever the heck they want to us and to our soldiers and to our personnel in that country. I mean, here's a tip for the media. Trying to storm our embassy is an act of war. So if we're going to get lectured about acts of war and assassinations from people who know very little about the realities of either, at least understand what has really happened here. Um, they also have Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, uh, also known as Jamal al-Ibrahimi, uh, who's a senior, uh, senior Shia militia leader who was killed in this, in this strike, uh, reportedly by a, a Reaper drone outside of uh, Baghdad airport. By the way, excellent work by military and, and intelligence uh, teams here that must have been involved in this. Um, but I think that the president has shown a willingness to do exactly what many of us were hoping all along, which is to make the tough call, to make the tough decision. This is what Obama would not do. By the way, Trump has made the tough, Trump enforced the red line with Syria about chemical weapon usage and actually struck at the Syrian regime. By the way, did that lead to war? Are we at war with Syria? No, we are not. In large part because we are powerful up here and Syria is their power is down around here and guess what if they get out of line we can crush them I'm not saying we should I'm not trying to sound like a warmonger I hate the idea of a war in Iran we should not occupy Middle East countries we should not try to destabilize uh, to do regime change and then do stabilization operations and all this stuff we, we've done that that's over with that period in our history I hope we never go back to but we don't have to try very hard if we want to hit them so badly that we can put them back in the Stone Age. It's not that difficult for the United States military. And they know that, too. If they had the capability to crush us, they would. We don't crush them because we're a moral and decent nation and don't want to do these kinds of things. Um, but the political opposition to this is just, it's stunning. Um, everyone, has, everyone agrees. that This is the formulation you get I mean, there's the, there are the crazy leftists who are saying that this is like, I saw one leftist who said this was like killing, I think it was George Washington, like Abraham Lincoln and someone else all at once by killing Qasem Soleimani. We've destroyed the most revered and beloved figure in all of Iran, and we're going to bring the Iranian hellfire down on it. Well, actually, we brought the hellfire down on Qasem Soleimani probably, but, you know, we're going to bring the reality of Iran's wrath upon us and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, the Iranian, they're going to, they're going to respond. They're going to have to find a way to do it that it doesn't quite uh, trigger an angry Trump. This is also where I think having a guy who is unpredictable is favorable to us. Because the Iranians, this is a vicious, blood-soaked, 
evil regime. I mean, the Iranian regime is really terrible. You know, they, they routinely order murders and executions and imprisonment of dissidents and terrorist attacks against innocent civilians. I have no problem with this whatsoever. They thrive on it. People at the very top, the Guardian Council, the leadership of Iran, the mullahs. I mean, it's a mullocracy. And this is, this is a country that should not exist the way that it does. Um, but here we are. Here we are. And the Democrats never disappoint with how absurd they're willing to be on this stuff. I mean, you had uh, Joe Biden release a statement. President Trump just tossed a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox. I think he stuck the dynamite into Qasem Soleimani. And he owes the American people an explanation of the strategy and plan to keep safe our troops and embassy personnel, our people and our interests. It's just essentially Biden saying, I don't like it because Trump did it. That's it. That's all he really has to say. The good news for us is that Biden has been reliably wrong on every major foreign policy decision of the last 40 years. So his opposition to the Soleimani strike should be taken as a huge data point in favor of it. What you're also seeing right now is uh, it's, it's even more apparent this morning than it was last night. But you have many prominent Democrats and former White House officials from the Obama administration who aren't even really that upset about escalation here or war, the prospect of war. What they're upset about is that Trump's decisive action is a repudiation of Obama's approach to Iran, which was maniacal appeasement at any cost, including letting Qasem, letting Qasem Soleimani continue to run around and do all this support of terrorism and undermine our interests and our allies' interests in a part of the world that, you know, we'd like to forget about, but unfortunately, because of the energy situation there, we, we got to kind of deal with it. Um, this is where we are. You will see more Democrats coming out in opposition to this in the days ahead and saying crazy things because to them, and I mean this, I do not believe this is overstatement, Donald Trump is a bigger threat than Qasem Soleimani. Now, I don't mean a bigger political threat, because you could actually make that case to Democrats who are lustful for power and insane about how, how much they hate Trump. But I think they actually believe that Trump is a bigger threat to global security than Qasem Soleimani. They really think that. That's how absurd they are. And if you think that perhaps, and you generally know that I I'm not one for uh, prone to overstatement, although in radio, that's certainly a tool that a lot of people, a lot of people like to like to use, get a little bit of attention. The world's going to end tomorrow. Ilhan Omar shared this one, this one. I mean, Ilhan Omar just perfectly captures here, just nails the left wing view on this, which is this is what she wrote on Twitter. So what if Trump wants war? Uh, knows this leads to war and needs the distraction. Real question is, will those with congressional authority step in and stop him? I know I will. Okay, first of all, she's not going to step in and stop anything. Second of all, what is Trump trying to distract from exactly? Record low unemployment, record high stock market, booming prosperity, a border that's increasingly secure. What, what exactly is Trump trying to distract from here? An impeachment process that, unless you're just a wild-eyed partisan, is a sham, a total sham. It's a joke. It's preposterous. 
and it's falling it's falling flat even from the perspective of the power mad democrats so so what is trump trying to distract from i mean she's saying this is this is you know wag the dog with a strike on qasem soleimani no this is the reestablishing of a very important and very basic principle uh, which is that we just will no longer accept this we will no longer be in a position where we will need or where we will um accept continued plotting by a former military intelligence officer who has directed hundreds of assassinations of american soldiers with total impunity in a theater of declared hostilities trump was not willing to accept this anymore at what point is enough enough and all the iranians have to do is stop being belligerent lunatics that's all they have to do and things will get a lot better very quickly but if they're not going to stop we're not going to stop the Obama administration policy was let them just keep on the shelf their nuclear program, get a whole bunch of cash. In fact, deliver cash to them, literally deliver it, pallets of cash, as we remember. As I told you, I was at CNN. Oh, they're not paying off a terrorist regime. That money already belonged to Iran or something. And it's just absurd. Uh, that didn't change Iranian behavior. All it did is embolden it. Qasem Soleimani was running around taking selfies on battlefields. He was laughing at us. He was mocking us. This is a guy that was killing our soldiers. He should have been terrified to show his face anywhere. He's just driving around in, in, in Baghdad like it's no big deal. I don't think so. But the Obama legacy here of the Iran deal is also in play. And that's why you're seeing the, the Ben Rhodes, MSNBC, CNN echo chamber of uh, just in a fury over this. You know, I guess condolences, guys. Your your favorite Iranian terrorist just got taken out. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. This morning, Iran's master terrorist is dead. The architect and chief engineer of the world's most active state sponsor of terrorism has been removed from the battlefield at the hand of the United States military. No man alive was more directly responsible for the deaths of more American service members than Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the Quds Force within Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Cocaine Mitch gets it. Everyone who looks at this, take Trump out of it for a second. Everyone who looks at this seriously understands this could not continue. We couldn't, we, we couldn't have this guy running around, killing our people, plotting against us, and he's untouchable? We can't do anything because, oh no, Iran? Well, then Iran's already won. We've surrendered the battlefield before we've even taken it. I don't think so. And God bless Trump for making the right call here. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, team, as I was looking at the Democrat response to things, I also came across uh, that the president uh, retweeted one of my thoughts on uh, one of my tweets on the Iraq situation. So always appreciate that from POTUS. Uh, and it has to do with my point on the invulnerability, the invincibility of Qasem Soleimani. This is absurd. 
why would we give somebody that designation, which is effectively what he had, which is why he was taking selfies, why he thought that he could run around the battlefield. Um, and then you have all these journalists and liberals and Democrats, really all one and the same, who are running around just screaming about this because they're they're so certain that this will lead to war. Um, war is not what Trump wants. War would be, I mean, a real war with Iran where we were... Uh, there was a, a declaration of open hostilities, and the only way this thing ends is if the Iranian government sues for peace or if we take out the Iranian regime, right? That's uh, that's not what Trump wants, and that's not what's going to happen here, by the way. The people that are claiming that this is going to just lead us inevitably into an all-out conflict, um, I think they just don't know what they're talking about. It's not the case. Uh, but that's a very helpful a very helpful talking point for those who just want to find a way, find a means to do everything they can to undermine the Trump administration, right? Trump is a warmonger now. This is what they say. Uh, meanwhile, you look at a list, I was mentioning this before, of difficult foreign policy decisions that he's made, or when I say difficult, I should say decisions that, that come with a risk factor, um, but a willingness to make those decisions. You know, the Obama administration got such a pass from the press because it was always, oh, they're, they're being deliberative. No, they just were being indecisive because they didn't want to make a tough call. Because you make a tough call, it goes wrong, you get held responsible. They didn't want to get held responsible, so they didn't want to do that. So this is where you got things like leading from behind in Syria or strategic patience was another thing that the Obama administration, you know, it's just you can't make this stuff up. And it was all to get the JCPOA, by the way, the invulnerability that was conferred on specifically Qasem Soleimani was directly tied to the fact that the Obama administration absolutely needed some kind of deal in uh, deal with the Iranians in order to cement a foreign policy legacy, which would then transition into a glorious Hillary Clinton administration and so on and so forth. That was the plan. And now not only has Trump said, no, we're out of this bad deal. Um, but also, people are looking at what the reality was of Iran post-JCPOA and saying to themselves, hold on a second, they still get to do all the terrorist stuff? They still get to uh, go after our people and undermine our interests across the region? No, no. En enough is enough. And it, this is something that, you know, if you walk around, you ask just an, an everyday American, hey, you know, this guy killed a lot of soldiers. Should we, should we take him out? You know, he, we know he killed a lot of American soldiers. Most Americans would say, yeah. Protect our people. Absolutely. And yet the foreign policy intelligentsia, such as it is, thinks that this is uh, a, a horrible decision by Trump and that this is look, I mean, Qasem Soleimani is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. To the Iranians is a big deal. This is not it's not a small figure. But then again, you know, we went to war with the Taliban and they were calling Osama bin Laden, you know, shake. And he was very much calling the shots with the Taliban for a while. I mean, yeah, you know, you had Omar, obviously, is technically the head of the Taliban, but I think he was doing bin Laden's, he was doing bin Laden's bidding. So it, this is a moment where we should be braced for some kind of impact. I'm not saying nothing will happen. But the Democrats are saying that we're about to go to war and we have the war that we're going to uh, face is you know, all Trump's fault. I mean, you had Chris Murphy from Connecticut uh, senator, I think. I don't think he's a congressman. I think he's a senator. Whatever. Soleimani, I, I mean, I know I should know all these things, but sometimes. Also, you can hear my cold now has transitioned to a point where it, it sounds more like a cold than it did before, but I actually feel better for whatever that's worth. Yesterday, I felt a lot worse. 
Soleimani was an enemy of the United States. That's not a question, Chris Murphy writes. The question is, as reports suggest, did America just assassinate, without any congressional authorization, the second most powerful person in Iran, knowingly setting off a potential massive regional war? This is just going 10 steps beyond where we currently are, because anything that Trump does must be greeted with hysteria and, oh, my gosh, we're all going to die. Everything Trump does. This is the environment the Democrats have created now. Uh, we, we know that uh, there are others who are saying even crazier things. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know if it's worth spending any time on it, but Rose McGowan, the, the actress, um, I, I, don't, I don't have the tweet in front of me, but essentially he's put out something like, you know, don't, don't blame us, Iran. We're being held captive by a terrorist regime, meaning here in America. And please don't kill us all. And we're sorry. And I mean, this is a little bit of of the mentality of the left. I mean, that's obviously a exa somewhat exaggerated version of it. But this is the approach that they tend to take. Um, they really seem to think that if we get down on our hands and knees and beg forgiveness from the Iranian regime, all the bad things we've done. They never Iran never has to apologize for anything. All the bad things that we've done, though. Uh, will somehow be forgiven and we can just move on. Uh, one thing that is likely to happen here, I mean, I, again, I've told you no one really, no one knows. If I knew where the Iranians were going to strike, I wouldn't say it on this radio show. I would call some of my friends at Langley and, and the White House, you know, in this. So I, I don't know. And I don't even have a good idea. The Strait of Hormuz is the obvious, just from this perspective of creating a massive uh, economic and national security catastrophe. I mean, that's that's the first place they'd go, but there might be other options that the Iranians decide to pursue here. But as I said, they're not this isn't a band of terrorists not affiliated with any state where, okay, how do you other than just tracking them all down as individuals, how do you exact any punishment against them? I mean, if the Iranians shut down the Straits of Hormuz, I mean, I think we're probably just going to take out, you know, every Iranian, every Iranian military airfield, every Iranian military base. We destroy, I mean, destroy all their military infrastructure. Not going after civilians, not going after their civilian you know, population centers. We're not doing that. It's not who, that's not how America operates. But we take out all their military facilities or half of them or whatever, I mean, whatever the decision in that it's made by the, in the E-ring of the Pentagon, Joint Chiefs of Staff, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we could do. And the Iranians, there's very little the Iranians could do about it. And at some point, how much pain do they really want to bring upon themselves? And this, this is the nature. I mean, ultimately, this is when we discuss how Trump has a, a gut instinct of how to deal with, with bullies and thugs and bad people. And all the so-called smart set, the very overrated intellectuals of the foreign policy world who really just like to sit around and and spew a lot of their their degrees and their knowledge at each other without ever being held accountable for terrible decision making and no real progress. And the I mean, the ossified nature of policy debate that you'll come across from people in the State Department and people in people in the intelligence community. I was a CIA. I remember a lot of folks just want to just, you know, whap, 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 just talk about this stuff all day long, do nothing about it. And then if anyone actually takes decisive action, they flip out and lose their minds. Oh, and one other point here. The tribalism of the Democrats can't be overstated either. It is a real thing. And I remember it. I was working in conservative media at the time when uh, when Obama gave the order and he did give the order as commander in chief for the raid on Osama bin Laden. Republicans were all saying, maybe it was a little bit begrudgingly for some of them, but they were all saying, good job, Obama. That was the right move. That, that was 
almost, I mean, I, I can think of very few, if any, exceptions off the top of my head to that. I was certainly the camp where I said, look, give, give credit where it's due. Be a principled person in the way you assess the actions of those who are in power. And that was, it was the right move, okay? And it wasn't quite as hard, you know, it's hard for the Navy SEALs that were all risking their lives, getting on choppers, going into Pakistan, could spend the rest of their lives in prison or worse. Um, hard for them. Really that hard for Obama? I mean, cross-border raids are not actually as unusual as people think they are for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, you know, they could have just said, you know, we tried and, and yeah, maybe it would have been Jimmy, a Jimmy Carter moment for Obama, but instead it helped get him reelected. So, but it was the right move. The point is Republicans were willing to say this was the right move. And you remember when Trump gave the order, you know, gave the order to obviously send, uh, send our special operators after Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. There were people then who were, oh, you know, but, but because of what he did before, we wouldn't have, you know, they were complaining. They immediately found a way to complain about it. They couldn't just say, yeah, good move. Thank you, Commander in Chief. We're all Americans first. And now you have another instance where most of the powerful Democrats, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and all these others, immediately turn around and use this as a means of criticizing Trump. Could you, could you, do you think that President Bernie Sanders would have given this order? Really let that one, let that one marinate for a second. Let that one simmer. You, you think that President Elizabeth Warren would have given this order? Obama didn't. Bush didn't. As I said, Bush was, you got to remember, Bush the first four years was different than Bush the second four years. Second four-year Bush, and I, I briefed him a couple times in the Oval Office on intelligence matters for the CIA. I remember he was a beaten down fellow, beaten down from that, from both wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, the global war on terror, post 9-11. I mean, it was, <clears throat> he was a shadow of his former self and didn't have, and it's also, you know, I mean, don't even get me started. He wouldn't, you know, wouldn't pardon Scooter Libby. I mean, he just, he just lost his, he lost his gut. He lost his, his grit, his instinct to do what was necessary in a lot of ways and a lot of things. Just barely willing to go forward with the surge, by the way. I mean, the surge was a much dicier proposition in terms of getting the go-ahead than people realize. But maybe stories for another time. I remember because I was there. Uh, Democrats are using this first and foremost as an opportunity to try and uh, undermine the president of the United States. That, that's the single most important thing to them. Not what does this mean for us? Are we going to war or not? Um, the tribalism of Democrats knows no bounds. I mean, Trump is evil is the first, that's the first thought they have. It's the last thought they have. It's all that really motivates them, it feels like, in a day-to-day -day sense now. Those in the political scene on the left, opposition to Trump is everything. Um, now, what are we going to see? Next step, I was going to say this before, and I got sidetracked, so I got a lot to tell you on all this stuff. Uh, you will see the Iraqi parliament probably vote to eliminate the U.S. presence in Iraq. This will be interesting. Okay. Um, are we going to withdraw U.S. military in response to the Iraqi parliament saying we got to go? Does this actually turn into a way that Trump ends the formal U.S. military presence in Iraq? Now, we remember what happened after Obama did that. Obama just pulled up and said, oh, you know, we're all coming out. They pretended they couldn't get a status of forces agreement, but they didn't want a status forces agreement. They just they let the negotiations fail, and then they pulled out, pulled out U.S. troops. Then we had the rise of ISIS. You know, maybe this time, maybe this time around, Trump will find a way to deal with them so that they don't, so the Iraqi government doesn't tell us that we have to be ejected. But, you know, maybe it's time to build a base up in Kurdistan, folks. I mean, there's, it's time for some outside the box thinking. What we've been doing is not working. What we have been doing in the Middle East has not had the benefits for us that we would have, uh, we would have thought 
given the amount of blood and treasure and toil that we have put into this situation. So I do think you're going to have this vote in the Iraqi parliament, and that could say the U.S. presence in Iraq is then on a uh, very, very shaky ground. Um, but we don't want to be in Iraq forever. And, you know, ultimately, we, we do have to accept that some of these countries are going to figure out their stuff on their own. And it's not going to be us. <clears throat> That's really the red line for me. We're not rebuilding other people. We're not rebuilding any more Muslim countries. That, that's done. We've had enough of that. Um, we're not doing regime change. We're not rebuilding. Um, but that doesn't mean that if they, you know, if they take a bunch of U.S. soldiers prisoner or if they shoot down one of our ships or a plane, we don't annihilate all their military facilities. That's not the same thing as saying, well, we're going to invade your country, take over and police your streets, build your schools, write your constitution for you. It's not the same thing need to separate these things when we're talking about the range of options here. Uh, but you are probably going to have this Iraqi vote in the parliament. I mean, you can go back. I don't remember the show now, but I said the Iraqis are going to kick us out. So this has been coming, by the way. They've been meaning to kick us out for a while. You've got a Shia-majority country. Iran is their biggest, uh, is really their biggest, I was going to say supporter. That's not even really, uh, you know, they're, they're the most influential actor, external actor in, the, in Iraqi politics is Iran. And that's not going to change. You do have a Shia majority in the country, and you're going to have sectarianism continuing on here. And Iraq is going to be a messy, nasty place for a long time. Not going to be our messy, nasty, nasty place, hopefully. That's, that's the real separation. That's the real point. Trump doesn't want war in Iraq. I know that. I mean, he does, I'm sorry, war with Iran. He doesn't want a war in Iran. He understands that that would be a threat to uh, his reelection. I think more importantly, a lot more importantly for Trump, he realizes, you know, are we ever going to learn the lesson? Are we ever going to learn the lesson? And, I, you know, it, it is a little scary that you got Bolton running around saying, you know, I hope this is the first step to regime change. I saw that tweet that I said, wow, this guy, he's just a true believer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how, how many trillions of dollars we spend, how many, how many soldiers, thousands of soldiers die, tens of thousands of soldiers, grievously wounded, people coming back with PTSD. For what? I would like a better answer. And Af in Afghanistan, at least we did eliminate the Taliban and or sorry, eliminate um, Al Qaeda and kick the Taliban out of power. Mission accomplished in that sense. OK, what exactly are we doing in Iraq? It's a lot much tougher, much tougher uh, discussion to be had. So that's what I've got for you today on what's going to happen with Qasem Soleimani. I don't want to spend the whole so, uh, show on this. We got other things to talk about, but this is a big one and things could get. Things could get a little little scary in the days ahead. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, stuff could happen here. I mean, this is, you know, you've got a cornered, vicious enemy that feels like they have to do something. I just hope that they recognize that this commander-in-chief is not the previous one or the one before that. They do not want to test him. I do not want to see uh, what will be the aftermath, or maybe, depending on what the Iranians do, maybe I do want to see the aftermath, but it's going to be... A, a fearsome thing. I mean, we will we will remember the day that Trump orders retaliation against the Iranians if the Iranians really decide that they want to they want to pick a fight here, a real fight. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Soleimani is, it's difficult to convey how revered he is in Iran. Imagine the French Foreign Legion at the height of the French Empire. This guy is regarded in Iran as a completely heroic figure, personally very brave. I was wondering, I was, earlier when I was trying to, when Ara was talking, I was trying to think of somebody, I was thinking of de Gaulle, although he became a leader of the country. Which right, not. it's not quite, but, yeah, right. but there's something, he means bigger than any, any he, put it this way, other than the Supreme Leader Khamenei and maybe the President, he, is, he looms larger in Iran than almost any other figure. Mm. He's regarded as personally incredibly brave. The troops love him. Uh, and he has been the, the, the kind of mastermind of Iran's policies in Syria, in Iraq. Oh, why do we need to have any Iranian state TV propaganda? Just put CNN on the air. Anderson Cooper's like, yeah, you know, kind of like Charles de Gaulle. Fried Zakari is like, yeah, this guy's this guy's really beloved. You know, I got a this is amazing. Washington Post right after this happened referred this was the headline. Airstrike at Baghdad Airport kills Iran's most revered military leader, Qasem Soleimani. Most revered military leader, my friend. That now joins austere religious scholar and mourners trying to storm our embassy as word choices that make normal people wonder whose side the American mainstream media is on. Mourners that are storming our embassy. Austere religious scholar for Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the terrorist. Qasem Soleimani, terrorist mastermind. He's most, the most revered military leader in Iran. This is how they describe him. Now, even if that's true, I would just note, okay, Osama bin Laden was the most revered al-Qaeda leader. Did they refer to him? That was, was he always referred to as the most revered, charismatic leader of al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden. Is that, is that, was that his official title at the Washington Post and at CNN? I just want to know. It's tough. I don't know what's worse, that these people are idiots or that they just don't really like America all that much. At least not America with Trump running it. I, I don't know. You can go in either direction. You can convince me either one is true. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. You look at a city like mine, which is Bosnia. Since he's been mayor, Democratic mayor, socialist mayor, people have done much worse than when I was mayor in Bloomberg. cities. Poor people are suffering 20, 30, 40 years. The Democrats have done nothing but steal. It's time for a big change. The Democratic Party has to go through a revision. I have to get back to one of the reasons I was a Democrat a long time ago. Take care of people. They're taking care of themselves now. New York City is in a bit of a decline right now. Maybe not. Well, real estate actually is down here. But uh, I mean, in terms of crime, in terms of safety on the streets. And we've had this whole slew of really vicious, uh, brutal anti-Semitic attacks. And people are starting to ask the question, Okay, what exactly has changed here? Why are things getting worse in a time of low unemployment, a time of general prosperity, rising wages? Why do we have uh, dirtier, less safe streets than we did in the past. I mean, there's more trash in the ground. There's uh, a much bigger problem of vagrancy here. And we have the biggest, people are talking about California, but actually in, in sheer numbers, because New York, of course, has a larger population. I think New York has the largest homeless population in the entire country uh, for any city. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And it's getting worse in part because 
this is a problem we find with Democrats, with leftists, really. And I, I think we need to start transitioning and, and making it very clear. They're not liberals. The Democratic Party of today is a leftist party. Uh, people like Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they are where the party is going. So they can try to head fake us with uh, Joe Biden, who's just an idiot who will say whatever he has to to get elected anytime he's trying to get elected. But the real movement within the Democratic Party is to the left and it is socialist. I mean, they are socialists now. They will quibble with that because we understand that our country is different from other countries and that we believe in individual rights, property rights, that the individual is separate and sacred and not part of just the collective and, and that the common good as defined by an elite or by bureaucrats or a combination thereof does not override the individual rights and freedoms that any one of us should have. That We are a country of individuals first and foremost. Um, and also a country of individuals and then family, right? You, you can see the tension between the collectivist, socialist approach to society that the Democrats are constantly advocating for and what conservatives, at least those who understand the ideology, which unfortunately these days doesn't even include a lot of people who are very prominent on the, on the right. But we could talk about that some other time if you want. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's a whole movement of grifters. They're doing a great job pretending to care about things they could care less about. But. The truth is, this tension is getting stronger right now, and the collective versus the individual is the fight of the 2020 election, although we'll see what happens with Iran. I don't think we're going to war there. If that happens, there'll be other stuff to talk about. But they never learn the lessons of the past. That's why I was getting on a little rant here about socialists. They never look at what has happened, what works and what doesn't work, and say, we will learn lessons from this. You know, the, what's the, the old line about conservatives stand athwart history yelling stop? I forget who that quote is attributed to. Um, but I, mean, I want to say it was Buckley. That's not right. I don't know who it is. Whatever. It's a good quote, though. I throw good quotes into the show. Uh, conservatives also stand athwart libs and commies and socialists and say, hey, look at what happened before. Let's learn from this. Let's learn from the mistakes of the past. Let's understand. Let's understand that. I mean, that's one of the, the great ironies of the progressive movement in so many ways is that they want to progress by doing things that they have either already tried and failed or that other people have done and failed miserably at and led to deprivation, despair and tyranny. I mean, this is this is the way it goes. Right. There are cycles of this. And uh, Bill de Blasio, who is a far left guy and takes this criminal justice reform approach here in New York City, um, you know, th this is where you have to start really digging down into what does criminal justice reform mean? Yeah, I mean, even producer Mark, Bill de Blasio is an idiot. We all know this. And criminal justice reform, as far as de Blasio is concerned, just means doing whatever he has to do to make certain constituencies think that he's on their side more. Whatever that, whatever that means. Not the cops. It's on the cop side. Uh, but for example, I mean, part of criminal justice reform movements now in this country, and, and this is where you know, some conservatives have come along. I, I believe in, in some criminal justice reform. I mean, I do think that you know, first-time truly nonviolent drug offenders, and this is where you get into, did the person uh, take a plea to a nonviolent non felony when they could have been for example, charge for, you know, extortion, weapons, possession, you know, other things that aren't, you know, this is not somebody that you want in your neighborhood, right? We're always led to believe that somebody just got caught with a little too much weed and they're spending 30 years in prison. That's not what happens. I mean, it can happen. I'm not saying it doesn't, but that's generally not the case. But there's also this more insidious narrative out there that the criminal justice system 
is racist because of the racial disparity of inmates within the criminal justice system. Here's the problem with that. Mo most of the people who are in prison, and I say most, I mean, you know, overwhelming majority. Uh, I, I can't give you a number, but people are in prison usually because they committed a crime. They did something that is in violation of U.S. law or state law, right? They did something that is illegal. It's not because of their skin color. It's because they did something that is a crime. But this narrative on the left has been able to grow where, well, and the criminal justice system is racist. Not that it has some you know, racial, uh, racist shortcomings. You know, there are some cases here or there, because clearly that's, that's true. It's kind of like saying, okay, well, are there racist cops? Yes. Is the... Uh, is law enforcement racist in this country? They would say yes, too. But the answer is no. Law enforcement's country is not racist. It's not it's not accurate. The stats don't bear it out. And anybody who spent any time as I have working with law enforcement knows it's just not the case. Um, but they these narratives have grown so that you now have this rubric of criminal justice reform in a place like New York City, a place like Los Angeles, where now you can't. I think if you commit a uh, a property crime under $900. It's a misdemeanor now in Los Angeles. You know, this, we are returning to some of the theories about criminal justice and social justice from the 70s and the 80s in places like New York, Los Angeles, and elsewhere. You know, Baltimore, Baltimore's crime, Baltimore's murder rate is sky high right now per capita. And then I went to Baltimore. It's, it's stunning. I went, I went to the poorest areas of Baltimore specifically to spend time in them and see them and see what was going on. And you feel like you're in a time warp to some city in the midst of the 80s uh, crack epidemic. This is today. You can go right now and check it out for yourself. And in the midst of this, and remember, you know, there's, there's a momentum to these things. It doesn't change overnight. And by the time it is irrefutable that you have had a major increase in the criminality in a city, it is much more difficult to deal with. Right. If you wait until everyone has to agree, yeah, wow, there's way too much criminality here, then that's too late. Um, and I think we're getting closer and closer to that. In fact, even Bill de Blasio has um, gotten closer to this. Here's what he has said. I'm sorry, closer to the reality here. Here's what he said about the very foolish bail reform law in New York City. Play uh, 12. But where I think there's real agreement is that the bail reform law needs to be amended. I believe this strongly. I know Commissioner Shea and Chief Monaghan believe it. There is a chance now for the legislature to get it right. They did some very good reforms, but there's also things that need to be done, particularly empowering judges to determine if someone poses a threat to the surrounding community and giving judges the power to act on that. Because guess what? Right now. There are a whole bunch of very serious crimes for which the judge is not allowed to post any bail and not allowed to hold somebody in custody until their trial. Have to be released. No bail released. Out on the street. Different kinds of, you know, some kinds of arson, some kinds of burglary. I believe even, I think sexual assault or rape three might be one. I mean, there's a third, you know, third degree, first degree is the worst. It can vary depending on, you know, the jurisdiction, whether first degree or third degree. A third degree burn is the worst burn, but first degree murder is the worst murder. Um, the reality here is that people, including some who are involved in, or one individual, one woman who was involved in these anti-Semitic attacks, if a judge had been able to remand them to custody until their trial, perhaps there'd be people who, had, who weren't attacked. These are real public safety threats, but... You know, the narrative is the system is unfair. The system penalizes minorities. The system um, 
is racist. And therefore, we just have to stop the system from functioning as it does. I know, for example, that there is a uh, one of the problems that the district attorney's office here has in New York now is that there's so much paperwork and discovery required to bring a criminal case in the city of New York that the lawyers involved in it will say that they just, you know, the prosecutors, the district attorney's office employees will tell you, uh, you know, they're overwhelmed. And this is part, but but the legislature, the state legislature wants these things because that then makes it harder to push prosecutions, which gives leverage to people who want to seek deals so that they spend less time in prison or get no prison time at all, right? They're just slowing down the machinery of criminal prosecution. I mean, I saw Tucker's show last night. Tucker, whenever I do a show, we usually, you know, if we, especially if we can talk about the reality of the criminal prosecution system in this country, you know, you, you can't help but look and say, hold on a second. So Paul Manafort is facing like 40 years in prison, but there are people that shoot people. I mean, literally shoot people in Philadelphia. And the district attorney there is like, well, you know, we got to go easy on them. You know, there are murderers that they're saying, well, you know, is he, he wrote like nice poems when he was in prison or he's you know got some like left wing group that that says that this is unfair or racist or something so we should let this it's just crazy it's gotten completely off the rails i mean i forget the name of the guy but the prosecutor in philadelphia is just just horrifying and and the situation here in new york is not is not all that much better and people can point to they say oh we have a low we have low murder rates it's not true in places like baltimore i'm not sure what the philly murder rate is i think it's been pretty bad but not that bad um, well, yeah, we have low murder rates, but but quality of life crimes, property crimes, these things, they grow in time. And if not addressed, it just leads to greater criminality and uh, problems of violence. And, and eventually you get to you get to murders and homicides. What do you think, producer Mark? Uh, Philly, has, Philly has the most uh, murders since 2007 last year. Wait, 356. In its, in its, wow. Yeah. 356 wow. homicides last year. Most since 07. Uh, in Philadelphia. To find out the name of the prosecutor for me, by the way, the district attorney is the one I'm looking for in Philadelphia. District, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So Philly's even worse than I thought. I, I knew it was bad. I didn't know how bad it was. I mean, Baltimore is in terrible shape. Obviously, the south side of Chicago. I think the west side of Chicago has a fair amount of violence, too. That's really in bad shape. Um, and this is all because of these narratives that Democrats say because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel like they're being the nice people. They don't want to be racists. What is it? Larry Krasner? Yes. Yeah. That guy is just, he's just like, let him out. Let him out. You know, we don't want, we don't want bad people going to prison. I've always been somebody who's, oh, I was saying before, whenever I talk to talk about this, we always agree. Uh, yeah. Well, what, what exactly are we sending? Never mind Paul Manafort. Yeah. Okay. The guy didn't, you know, he cheated on his taxes. I think if you cheat on your taxes, by the way, for the most part, you should end up just having to pay everything you owe and then it'd be fine and it better be really cheating not like the government saying you're cheating but it's a close call right it better be like you just don't declare a whole bunch of money you make um and don't even get me started about do we have to have a federal income tax it's a conversation for another day i think the answer unfortunately is politically driven and it's yes but i wish it wasn't the case um but um you know roger stone roger stone is uh, tucker brought this up last night on his show roger stone is facing prison time for what who sent this guy to prison for years Years and years of federal prison for what? Oh, you know who's not going to get prison for lying is Andy McCabe, as I've been telling you all along. He's not going to go to prison. Story just came out yesterday that uh, former acting FBI director uh, McCabe uh, told FBI agents, yeah, you know, basically told them at one point when he got caught lying about a leak that they were investigating. So they're investigating a leak. He lied to them. He actually was the one who did the leak. 
So he was trying, I mean, this was a material lie. This is not a minor lie. This isn't, you know, I had cornflakes yesterday. Oh, no, it was Fruit Loops, which, by the way, would be a decent trade off because Fruit Loops are way better than cornflakes, as everybody knows. I mean, if you're going to have cereal for breakfast, which is terrible for you anyway, go for like the cereal that you wanted when you were a kid. You didn't even, you didn't even need milk. This is so delicious. By the way, do you see Gene Simmons freaked everybody out? Uh, on social media because he posted that he puts ice cubes in his cereal and milk. Yeah, I thought he died because I saw he was trending. Yeah, no. He did not die. He was... No. He was getting death threats probably from that. Just civilized milk and cereal in the morning perhaps died. Yeah. Because you can now now only... I mean, is it because he wants the cold milk? Is that it? Got to keep that milk frosty. I've never been a milk and cereal guy. I'm not a big cereal guy in general. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I'm, cereal is terrible for you. I mean, let me just be the way that's like, you're just eating sugar. You're just eating sugar. I like life cereal. That's not that bad for you. Yeah. I mean, mean, people would say Cheerios. Cheerios, I think makes a gluten-free version, which is actually. I think so. And they're supposed to be heart healthy. Heart healthy is also very much a kind of a whatever yeah, thing. They just put that on the label to make you buy it. Yeah, make you feel better while you're sitting there shoveling carbs and sugar in your mouth. Anyway, sugar for breakfast, not the way to go, folks. Actually, if you want to go of high fat, high fat for breakfast is actually the move. Do as I say, not as I do, though. Because I know what the right things are to do. I know what the right things are to work out, to eat. I just don't do them. I eat brie and take naps. Um, anyway, the city is getting... <laughs> did I just admit to eating brie? Yeah, I like brie. What can I tell you? I like fatty cheese goat cheese, brie, all the soft camembert, the uh, the more frou-frou it sounds and the higher the fat content and the stinkier the cheese, the more I like it. Uh, anyway, they're ruining New York City with this stuff. Uh, and this is all part of a national narrative that the criminal, ju- that, you know, when we think of criminal justice reform, it's let's be fair to people and like give them a second chance. When they think of criminal justice reform on the left, it's let's tear down the system. It's racist. It's not fair. Let a lot of people out. You know, let, let's let's even the score by letting criminals out of prison. What does that even mean? Well, de Blasio is trying to find out. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Rudy testifies that there's a Senate trial. That'd be fun. Speaking of somebody who cleaned up New York City, by the way, I'm forever grateful to America's mayor. You guys know I like Giuliani, so um, it, it can be done. Oh, by the way, uh, producer Nick just told me that it was Buckley in the NRO mission statement it said standing athwart history yelling stop. That's what a conservative. So even when I think I'm wrong, I'm right. It's a classic Buckism there, but that's the that's the way it goes. That's the way it is. Um, so we have much, much to get to, my friends, much to discuss uh, coming up in the next piece of the show here, including, I didn't get this before, um, some of my viewing over the Christmas break, which I want to share with you. The Witcher and the Mandalorian, a tale of two shows. I will get into that and more. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
All right, team, special treat for you today. Uh, my friend Sean Parnell has agreed to uh, join us here in the Freedom Hut, talk to us about the very momentous uh, events of the last 24 hours, as well as his congressional bid. He's going to be Congressman Parnell if things go according to plan here. Sean, great to have you, my friend. Of course, you're a former Army Ranger, author of Outlaw Platoon, and you are running for Congress. I know it's in western Pennsylvania. What's your district? Yeah, it's PA-17, uh, which is Beaver County, Butler County, and Allegheny County, which is my hometown. So kind of crazy, kind of exciting. Uh, but, hey, it's great to be back with you in the Freedom Hut, man. You know yeah. I love it. Yeah, well, just don't just don't forget who was, who was on Team Parnell, you know, in the earliest days when you're like, uh, you know, head of the Armed <laughs> Services Committee or whatever. OK, just remember, just remember who was here in the, in the early days. So now but so now getting down to business no, for a second, forget. my friend. Um, I, I want to ask you, what, what's your, you know, we've been talking a lot today on the show about the drone strike on Qasem Soleimani. Um, I just, you know, you, you served, you've been out there, you've been in frontline combat, you've had to see what the reality is of these kinds of decisions. Um, what's your take on, on the takeout of Qasem Soleimani? I think it's it's the best thing that happened to this country in a really long time. The world is safer and better place without Soleimani in it. Um, now, just for a lot of the listeners that you have that maybe don't know my background, 485 days of combat um, in Afghanistan. And I'm telling you, Buck, we fought against an enemy that carried Iranian-made weapons, you know, armor-piercing RPG-9s that could penetrate our trucks, armor-piercing rounds. Uh, we're talking machine guns like AK-47s and PKMs that were fresh off of Iranian factory lines with the pack and grease still on them and Iranian um, Iranian uh, serial numbers. Uh, one of them, like my truck ran over a plastic Italian TC-6 anti-tank mine, wounded four of my troops, killed my forward observer, Jeremiah Cole, was placed there by an Iranian made uh, IED cell team and so we did nothing but basically fight against Iranian proxies for a year and a half who were trained like really well and Soleimani was the architect of all of it and so I can't I even begin to understand I can't even it's hard to describe uh, the impact that this will have. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's a momentous occasion. Uh, Iran's the number one state sponsor of terror, and Soleimani was the architect of all of it, and now he's dead and he's gone. And I think the message is, you know, if you mess with the United States of America, there's going to be hell to pay, and that's a, that's, a, that's a good place to be when you're facing an enemy that's determined to bring about your demise. Now, Sean, the opponents of this strike are saying, oh, but now we're going to have more troops in harm's way, at least those who are who are trying to make something of a, of a real argument. Right? There's people that are just insane, a lot of that, and some of them are elected Democrats that you may be serving beside in Congress soon. But put that aside for a moment. The serious opposition to this is people saying, well, this will result in escalation that'll put more of our troops in harm's way. You were one of those troops. What no. do you say to that? No, it's, it's, garbage, it's a garbage take, Buck. It's a garbage take because, look, Iran has been at war with us for decades. They've been killing, capturing, kidnapping Americans for decades. They've been at war with us while we've constantly taken it on the chin. Now, the fact that this is a multi, there's, a, there's a lot to this. Um, but I think it's really important to draw a distinction 
between targeting a military target. Soleimani was a legitimate military target. Now, we know and we have intel that he was planning and, and about to conduct an attack on U.S. troops just prior or just or around the same time we took him out. So he's a legitimate military target. We took him out with no collateral damage. It makes the world safer. It makes the world better. And, the, and this is just in the wake of the uh, Iranians attacking a U.S. embassy. So we can take out terrorists, right, with no collateral damage and also not get entrenched in a war, right? I mean, we, it's, it's possible. Just because we took out a terrorist doesn't mean there's going to be escalation. In fact, the fact that we counterpunched so, so strongly against Iran, I think, makes conflict with that country less likely. Now, what do you think the Iranians are going to do? I mean, I've been saying, look, I know you don't know, I don't know, but is there anything that you're, what are your expectations for the level of retaliation that they will engage in? Well, I think they're going to respond, and I think I think what you'll probably see right off the bat is, is some a cyber attack in some way, shape, or form. You know, uh, and if they're going to, I think if they're going to respond military, at least initially, you're going to see clandestine attacks from the shadows by Iranian proxies, um, and and that's just if I if if I'm just planning a military operation, most likely course of action for the enemy are probably those two things. Um, but I'm telling you, I think that. I think that the Iranian leadership is scared, right? And 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 this is an interesting time, Buck, because now this and this is not a political talking point, but the fact that we are now energy independent for the longest time, my entire life, I've watched U.S. politicians tread softly around Iran because Iran controlled oil and oil shipping lanes for decades. Now that we're energy independent, we don't have to be we we don't have to worry about tiptoeing through the tulips with Iran. Right. And President Trump uh, and, and our energy independence, it gives President Trump the ability to go directly after Iranian leadership should they threaten the United States or our allies. Um, so I think, you know, if I'm a tactician or military leader or I'm in the Oval Office with the president advising him, I'm saying I think the Iranian leadership, the Iranian hierarchy are petrified right now because the people of Iran are rejoicing that Soleimani is dead. The people of Iraq are rejoicing that Soleimani is dead and the and Iranian hierarchy and the Iranian leadership is scared. Sean, this president's foreign policy compared to what we saw under Obama's foreign policy, what are the key differences as you see it? Well, you know, and I, th I think President Trump is different than Republicans and Democrats in a lot of ways. And I mean, I think it says a lot. I mean, one of the key differences is that the fact that Soleimani is dead and President Trump has the guts to take him out. Come on, man. That is that I haven't seen. I haven't seen any. I mean, we've been at war, Buck, almost my entire adult life. Right. And, and that's I've never seen um, a tactical victory like this on a high-value target, enemy of the United States during that entire time. And President Trump's the one who did it. And so, you know, you can get in the weeds and debate about foreign policy and about whether President Trump is effective or not. Um, but I think that, generally speaking, our, enemy, our enemies are more afraid of us than they've ever been. And I think our allies, I think our allies are probably encouraged, uh, at least the boots-on-the-ground warfighters are, uh, and, and I think it's also important that being an ally is, is, is a two-way street. You know, our allies need to pay their fair share as well. I mean, for the longest time, Americans have been bleeding the ground red in countries all over the world with minimal help from our allies. And I think President Trump is, is doing a pretty good job at getting them to the table as well. So, um, you know, our enemies being afraid of us is not a bad thing. You know, and I think President Trump, President Trump brings new, new meaning uh, to, to the words peace through strength. 
We're going to talk to Sean a bit about the political scene in a moment here and also his bid for the PA-17 congressional seat. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, everyone, we're back with combat veteran, former Army Ranger, author of Outlaw Platoon and current congressional candidate for PA-17 out in Pennsylvania, my friend Sean Parnell. Uh, Sean, I, let, let's start with the kind of the 30,000-foot view going into this election year. Uh, 2020 has already started with a bang. Everyone knows that. Things are already feel like <laughs> they're heating up in a national security sense, and they're obviously going to get a lot more intense in a political sense. We're about 30 days from the Iowa caucuses, you know, 30 days and change in the Iowa caucuses. Uh, this is all going to happen very quickly. What do you see as the key issues? I mean, obviously, this is going to tie into a bit of what led you to run. But what what are the big the big differences between Republicans and Democrats right now and, and between the Trump movement and the opposition to it as you see it? Well, well, I mean, look, I think that this election and what I try to tell people here in Western Pennsylvania is a choice between uh, freedom or socialism, freedom and our ability to chart our own path in life or socialism uh, and the government controlling every aspect of our life. You know, you look at what Ronald Reagan said, you know, ask yourself if your if your life is better off now than it was four years ago. Right. It was profound in its elegance in terms of its ability to strike to the heart of, of what that election was all about. What I tell people now is ask yourself what your life would be like if any one of these national Democrats got exactly what they wanted. They would tax you into oblivion. They'd knock on your door. They'd take your guns. You'd see post-birth abortion. You know, uh, unchecked illegal immigration, taxpayer subsidized illegal immigration. They would outlaw your private health care. Every Democrat on that stage represents an unnecessary intrusion into your life that we cannot afford. And so to me, that is what this election is all about. It's a fight for the heart and soul of what this country was intended to be. Buck. And so um, that's that's why I'm in this fight. That's why I'm running. My message is real simple. Defend freedom. Right. And, 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 and Americans ability to live the life. That they want, you know, and I think I think 2020 is the most. Uh, this is such a cliche thing to say because people say it all the time. But 2020 really is, I think, the most important election of our lifetime. And with its impeachment, what it essentially amounts to—I mean, the entire thing is a sham—and I refuse to debate the facts of an investigation. An investigation, and I use the term loosely. Uh, I, I refuse to debate the facts of an investigation that's a sham to begin with. And so, what it eventually. What it essentially is, Buck, is a silencing of 60-plus American voices, and I just can't stand idly by while something like that happens. Do you think that it's blown back on Democrats? Are they going to walk away from this impeachment in time? I, well, look, I, if, if, past is, if past is prologue, the Republicans lost, right? They lost seats in the House when we impeached uh, Bill Clinton, right? This is the first time in American history a president has been on the ballot during an impeachment process. We don't have analytics, both at the DCCC or the, or the NRCC, that, that can project voter turnout for something like that. We think the GOP and independent voter turnout is going to be through the roof. I, I know, at least here in PA-17, that people are, people are vehemently opposed to this impeachment. Uh, I think, you know, for most of the people here are asking, like, hey, well, what the hell do we send people to Congress for? Like we, we took a chance on Connor Lamb, who is my opponent, to go and be a, a moderate voice to, uh, that can bring people together. But instead, he's just towed the party line with Nancy Pelosi and done exactly the opposite of what he said he was going to do. So I absolutely think it's going to blow back on on 
uh, Democrats. But for, for me, ultimately, what, what this election is all about is just representing the, the people of Western Pennsylvania and being a true voice for them, because right now they don't have it, Buck. I, I mean, again, well, okay, I want to ask you about this, because I don't know much about this Connor Lamb guy, but the people that I do know who know say that Connor Lamb is like a bootleg liberal version of Sean Parnell. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever about it. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. But all all I know is that look, the guy the guy said he was going to oppose Pelosi, right? He votes with her ninety seven percent of the time. Now that's only on thirty six votes because Pelosi doesn't have to vote all the time, right? But how about this? He votes with Ilhan Omar ninety one percent of the time. He has a lower freedom score than AOC. You can't be a moderate and hold those positions or have that type of a voting record. So to me, it's like the message of my campaign is simple. You, if, if people of Western Pennsylvania want a warrior and want someone to defend them, you know, pull the lever for me because I'm going to be that. My opponent said one thing in district to get elected and he does another thing in Washington, and that's, that's the worst. You know, all my life I've seen politicians like that, and it drives me crazy, and I think it drives other people crazy, too. What's the most What's the most important priority, assuming you win? And I'm going to assume, I mean, you can't assume it, but I'm going to assume it, because Sean Parnell, damn it, America, make this happen. But assuming you win, uh, what would be your biggest priorities to try to push? I mean, I know you're one of, what, 435 in the House, uh, but what would you want to, what would you want to be some of the signature issues that, you know, and, you know, you're known in media, you, you're somebody that your voice will be heard a lot more than a lot of other freshman members of Congress would be. What's top of the Parnell agenda? Well, you know, just for the people of Western Pennsylvania, I can say you know, unequivocally that this economy, we've got to keep it going, Buck. I mean, businesses uh, and, and taxpayers are just starting to emerge and be prosperous, prosperous after eight years of Obama, you know, Obama taxes and regulations. You know, they were a wet blanket on the economy for eight years and people are just starting to get prosperous again. People want to keep the economy going. And so uh, I think that's that's a major sustain for me uh, when I get elected in November is making sure that we that we keep trimming back these regulations and lower taxes for Americans everywhere. I hate taxes. I think they're bad for this country. Uh, so it's going to be part of my job to keep taxes low. But I think the greatest greatest leadership challenge of, of our generation, Buck, is figuring out a way to handle our debt and deficit, especially given that China holds the vast majority of our debt. It's going to be a major leadership challenge. I think something that we're going to – chickens are going to come home to roost on our debt and deficit someday. And I think 2032 – by, by 2032, if we don't have this problem solved – um, things are going to get really bad here. We can't keep punting on this issue. And so, you know, I, many have tried uh, to get our debt in order. Many have failed, but I'm not going to be one of the ones that fail. Now, Sean, your opponent, no doubt, is going to get a lot of pup pieces in the media. You know, he might get the Beto treatment, maybe maybe a shirtless cover on Vanity Fair. You know, who knows? Because they're really going to they're really going to be trying to promote this guy to beat you. Uh, but so so I'm going to take it upon myself. This is my show. It's a freedom. I'll do what I want. Do a little a little puff piece section with Sean Pardell, where I just get to ask you questions that the audience may care to know. Like, for example, Sean, I mean, the real stuff. What is the best movie of all time? Oh, my God, man. This is a tough question. So, I, I mean, I okay. So, I'll just tell you. Anytime, anytime the movie Gladiator or Braveheart comes on on a Saturday, kiss my Saturday goodbye because that's what I watch. You know? I, those are both acceptable I, answers. Are they good? I mean, yeah. I mean, Shawshank Redemption is also good. It's up there. I mean, I, but I, I will take Gladiator. Even producer Mark curmudgeonly mark he will accept gladiator or braveheart he understands right. those, those are great movies what, what is and i know you're in western pennsylvania i don't know if that's where the where the uh the pennsylvania dutch farms are i don't know pennsylvania that well but uh <laughs> best ice cream flavor sean parnell cookies and cream hands down 
I'm done, but you got to go extra cookies. Anytime I go to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard, it's cookies and cream with or Oreo cookie blizzard with extra Oreos. All right, and if and if you if if I could send you. To any these are like, by the way, these by the way, these are like Democrat debate questions. It's oh no, of course. No, this is why. I mean, I feel like I feel like we might as well get this out of the way now because of the Democrats, <laughs> you know, the Democrat questions that they're going to get asked. I mean, Connor Lamb is going to be asked by you know the New York Times, like, what's it like to wake up every day and feel so awesome? And oh wow, have you been doing a lot of crunches lately? Like that's what he's going to get asked. <laughs> I swear to God, look, it's it's funny because it's so it's so true. Democrats, hey, what's your favorite puppy? You know, I mean that those are the types of questions that that the left gets. And so it's, I gotta say, man, it's refreshing. Yeah. Do, to you, get do you think your do you think your great grandparents are looking down on you with pride? I'm gonna go with yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with Sean Parnell. Will yeah. say yes on that. I'll answer I'll answer that yeah. one for him. Uh, who's gonna win the Super Bowl? Oh my God! I don't even know who's going to be in the Super Bowl, but I got I, okay. I'm going to go with San Francisco 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens in the Super Bowl, and I say the Baltimore Ravens win, even though, even though as a Steelers fan, it pains me to say that I can't stand the Ravens, but I think they're the best team in the NFL right now. Producer Mark is nodding. He seems to. Yep, you're, you're getting the, the guy in here who actually knows something in the Freedom <laughs> Hut about this stuff is saying that those are those are good. Show. Look, we haven't been able to trip you up with this one. With this one yet, interesting, interesting bit of uh, <laughs> when, and I got one more for you here. When is it just no longer acceptable to have up your Christmas decorations and Christmas tree? Um, you know, I, I look. I mean, I, I keep my Christmas tree up until New Year's to New Year's Day, and I listen to Christmas music until New Year's Day. Now, that's not a popular position, but I also there's a rule in my house: I don't listen to Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. It's not permitted to be played at all because I can't stand it. But I will leave my Christmas decorations up till New Year's, as well as listen to Christmas music after Christmas Day, which. I mean, which I've heard is not a popular position, but it's still a season, you know? Is Home Alone or Die Hard the greatest Christmas movie of all time? Home Alone is a great, you know, everyone says Die Hard to Christmas movie, and of course I love a Christmas movie, and of course I love it, but Home Alone is just, it's just classic. It's just classic. I, I, tell, I watched the making of Home Alone and the making of Die Hard on this Netflix, uh, the movies that made us show. I'd recommend that to everybody over the break. But I'd also recommend to all of our Pennsylvania listeners, and Team Buck is strong out in PA, PA 17 congressional election this year. Let's get Sean Parnell in office, everybody. He's my buddy. He's a great man. Sean, thanks for your time. <laughs> thanks, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I promised you guys we talk a little bit about my viewing, uh, my viewing of shows over the break. And some of you probably are like, okay, it's been a great show today, Buck, but this is not. And others, you're like, yes, culture time. Let's talk some culture. So um, I, I watched really two things. I saw 1917, the movie, but I want to hold off until my man Jesse Kelly can join on that because he's going to see it. Apparently, it doesn't roll out in Texas until next week. So, um, Texas, you're a little behind on the movies there. But it's all right. We still love you. And uh, I, But I watched on Netflix The Witcher and The Mandalorian. Let me start with The Witcher because I did. I, I was basically off Twitter the whole break, but I did have to just say one snarky thing on Twitter about The Witcher. Do you know the show, Producer Mark? Do you know the video game? I've heard of both, but I have not seen yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Played. So there's a video game of it, and the basic premise is a guy in a fantasy world, kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons world. It's a little, a little Game of Thrones, a little uh, along those lines. And there's a guy who is this special mutant 
who goes and kills monsters. But really, the show is about how the people around the monsters are like the real problem. And and then really, the show is supposed to be about how he and his kind of, uh, I don't know, you call a female wizard a wizard wizard dress. Um, I know a warlock is a male witch and a witch is a witch. What's a female wizard called? Is there a word for a female wizard? I think she's a wizard. Really? We're going to yeah. go with that. Okay. A lady wizard? I mean, you know, Harry they Potter. They wear like a call, long cloak. Oh, I mean, do they call them witches maybe? No. No. No, it was just wizards. In Harry Potter, they were all wizards. All right, all right. All so right. it's gender neutral. Yay, for wizards. There we go. Well, the wizards go both ways. So uh, anyway, the show is terrible. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. The show is like so bad. And I don't understand how Netflix can spend so much money. They got the guy who plays Superman, Henry Cavill. Who uh, every lady I've ever heard is like he's so handsome. Okay, I mean, he's a good-looking guy. He works out a lot. Great, um, but and the show is just—it's like the dialogue is bad. There's almost no good action whatsoever. Um, it's cheesy. It's corny. Even the effect—like it's just bad. And people are calling this the Netflix answer to HBO's Game of Thrones. And I'm like, they got to do better than this. I, I just get angry. I'm like, how can you take a show that's a little... It's kind of like Van Helsing meets Game of Thrones would be the way I'd describe the basic concept, right? Van Helsing, of course, was the uh, the doctor from Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is one of the greatest novels ever written, in my opinion. People laugh when I say that, but it's amazing. And look at all the stuff that it's spawned. Um, but but uh, Van Helsing was the one that is kind of the vampire hunter. And then there's the follow-on versions of Van Helsing, who's kind of like a ninja that ha that hunts vampires and not this old man who understands like hematology and things like that. Um, but it's not that. And there's not a lot of good monster stuff. It was really... I, all I wanted over break, especially as I got sick, as you can still hear my voice, all I wanted was a show to watch that I'm just like, great. Escapism. It's going to be entertaining. We're going to have some beautiful ladies, some good sword fights, some, some mead drinking. You know, sword fights, me drinking, and wenches. Like, this is kind of what I was expecting and signing up for. Um, and sure enough, no, that is not what I got. And I just, I don't, I really, it befuddles me how people could spend so much money and time making something for Netflix like this and have, I mean, the writing is atrocious. The dialogue is terrible. You can't follow the timeline. So I'm saving you. Those of you that like it, you just like the video game and you're pretending you like the show. I mean, you can like whatever you want, and I love you no matter what. If you're Team Buck, I love you no matter what. You can like and dislike whatever shows you want. But it's just nostalgia for the for the video game, which I'm told is a very good game series, and I can respect that. Um, but if you're, I never played the game. I just saw the show, and it was really, really bad. Um, and then I'm trying to think of what else. Nope. And now we'll move on to The Mandalorian, which is awesome. Great show. And I know people have been talking about it for a while. And not just because Baby Yoda is jaw-droppingly adorable, and I want a Baby Yoda for my birthday next year, but not like a toy one. I want like an actual Baby Yoda, because it's like this little green dude who hangs out with you all the time. He's very quiet, and occasionally has some magic powers to use in your assistance which sounds like a lot of fun to me but the mandalorian it's like they just execute well the show is good each episode stuff happens there are surprises they operate within the world they've created in a way that makes sense i can suspend disbelief but you can't set a world up in a certain way and then break all the rules that you've created for that world and it, this is uh, the guy who did um, Iron, the original Iron Man. Oh, what's that guy's name? He's, he's the guy from Swingers. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Favreau. 
Favreau, who did the original Iron Man, which is a great superhero movie, too. See, some of you say that I hate all movies and TV. That's not true. I just talk about the ones that I hate because I don't like that I lost the time watching them. Uh, the Mandalorian, look, they got me to check out Disney Plus just with this show. And I'm not a Star Wars guy, by the way. I haven't seen all this other Star. Have you seen Producer Mark? Have you seen all these Star Wars things, the new ones that are out? Because like, some are amazing and some are terrible, people and That's are why I won't watch The Mandalorian, because I don't get Star Wars. I don't really like it. So I think you might like the Mandalorian. You're not the first one who said even that if to you me, don't yeah. like Star Wars, because it really is a standalone prequel, and they just do a good job. Maybe like it it'll just, make you get the other movies. Yeah, and like the characters make decisions that you're like, oh, the writers actually thought about this and made it interesting, and you know, it's just you know, story script. These things still matter. You know, we've gotten in this era of everyone just you know blasting and explosions and CGI and monsters coming out of the sky and everything. You know, black holes opening up and it's just all this stuff. It's all distraction and noise. You still need a real story. You still need real characters. You need to care about these characters. And Mandalorian's great. And by I mean, Baby Yoda is amazing. And I will tell you a movie that you have to go see that you if you want a story and all that. You like Adam Sandler? Um, I've, I'm okay with him. His best acting performance ever in Uncut Gems. What's His Uncut Gems? Movie. What's Uncut Gems? The critics love this movie. It's hard to say without giving too much away, but okay. basically he's a jeweler in New York City, and I don't okay, want to say Okay, that's all I need. I just, yeah, you know, he has I a gambling know. problem that I will say. Okay. Yeah, but it is amazing. It's his best performance. I've never. I didn't know Adam Sandler could act as well as he did in this movie. I mean, I will always say comedians are the most of, of the performing... Of the, of the entertainment performing arts people, not including like music and sports, but comedians, if you're looking at people who are actors, people who are, you know, TV news anchors or who are pundits or whatever, they to me uh, are the most likely to be able to cross over into other things because being a comedian is actually like being a, a good comedian is the hardest thing to be. Oh, of course. To. But you the wouldn't think thing. like Sandler from his previous like roles, Most people can. Most people can't do, even people that do like news can't do a three hour day radio no. show with no notes or whatever, but like. I have no, I have no illusions that I can do go up and do stand up. <laughs> like the stand up is a whole other thing. Yeah, that um, sounds like the scariest thing. In the yeah, world. that does. That's the only thing. I mean, I would, I would give a, you know, I've done radio shows for literally millions of people when I fill in for Rush. I mean, uh, nothing, nothing like psychs me out except the notion of doing stand up. Well, that actually, maybe that means that I should probably try it. So no open fun. mic night in Gotham or something. I mean, I've, you know, I, I might. It would be fun to give it a shot, but I also would would have to be willing to curse, which I never do in public. Um, I only do in private life, which is funny. They're clean actually, comedians. People who actually know me are like, wow, you're kind of salty with the language. I'm like, yeah, you know. Some of the I best. gotta walk around all day, and it's a kid-friendly show we do here in the Freedom Hut. Obviously, I want people's I want people's eight-year-olds to be able to listen to this well, show. The Some FCC of them do. has something to say about that as well, well. Plus, also, yeah, that's right. I mean, we are you know we got a lot of stuff that's on the internet now, but I don't want producer Mark to stay up late at night having to cut out all my all my uh, you know f bombs. That's not good. Yeah, that wouldn't go over well. That wouldn't go over well. He'd be up late at night. So anyway, Uncut Gems. Producer Mark gives you a wreck on that one. Nineteen seventeen. Well, do you have? Another, did you watch any shows over the break that you want to share with? Uh, I did. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this one on air. It's not technically a curse because it's a name, but it's on Netflix. Do not bleep this. Shit's Creek. It's in the, the name. S-C-H-I-T-T-S. I've heard it said on the radio, too, so it's allowed to be. But it is a great show. Uh, it's a comedy. Yeah. It's about a rich family who gets their money taken away by the FBI, and the father jokingly bought a small town years before. They have to live in that small town. With no that actually sounds like kind of a fun premise. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, well, check it out. Yeah. People really thought that I was going to love... What was the movie? It's a sort of similar with uh, uh, the guy, Patrick Bateman and the family. It's a rich family. They lose all their money, and then they have to kind of just like stick to... Jason Bateman? Jason Bateman. Is that... This is... Uh, I know what show you're talking about. It's called Ozark. 
No, 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 no. That, that's 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 a, when he's dealing laundering money. There's another show before that. Oh. I'm forgetting. Everyone listening know. is going to remember it. I think um, that's a movie. Come to no, no, no. It. It's a show. It's, it was a, a show, movie too, it? but it was a show. And I can't remember. And everyone's always Arrested Development. That's the show. Oh yes, I've Arrested. heard good things. I've never seen it. Right? Yeah. I think producer Nick probably he was all over. He's he's in. Yeah. Arrested. He just texted Arrested Development. That's the one. So uh, I don't. Know, people love that one. I could never get that into it. I thought it was trying a little bit hard. I don't know. It wasn't really. My I thing. didn't even watch it. I was yeah. too young to Ozark, get into I think it. Yeah. Great. I mean, Ozark's it's, amazing. Yeah. Ozark is completely implausible, but it's still great. Like I'll I'll give it that. But it's, any of you watching, I got to tell you, Disney came out strong with Mandalorian. Is like. I mean, I've I've basically binge watched it. I watched the whole thing in a couple in a few days. It was really good. Also working on my book, by the way, on socialism. Don't worry, that's happening. It sounds like it. Yeah, a lot of that's going on too. That's coming out. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. All right. Time for roll call. Let's get to it. We get to our uh, Facebook inbox here. Starting off with my man Mark. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Not to be confused with producer Mark, who's here with me. Although if he wanted to write into roll call, I would let him. Because I'm I'm that kind of guy. Um, or he could just speak as he does on the show. So it doesn't really, we don't really need him to do roll call. Mark writes, keep up the great work. I'm a major crime prosecutor in the Bay County. So if you have any criminal questions, you can contact me. Good luck. Well, thank you, Mark. I mean, you know, it'd be uh, interesting to reach out to you and talk to you a little bit just off the record, but just for my own edification about how bad things really are getting in San Francisco now, how out of control the crime is and all of that stuff um, and what's really happening there. Because it's we are we're reaching a point where the libs, they've convinced us all to be a little bit more merciful, a little bit more. Oh, we need to rethink criminal justice reform, but they're not being reasonable about what should be reformed. They're just like, yeah, let people out. Dangerous people. Well, you know, the system is racist. So we have to let dangerous people out just because the system is racist. We're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Um, Meg writes, greetings. Driving today, so I haven't heard the show yet. American friends in Dubai are hearing the Brits telling Westerners to leave Dubai. Thoughts? After living there for so long, my gut is the, the straits will be, the straight of four moves will be the first target along with the friends in Israel. But otherwise, life should pretty well keep going. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, Meg, clearly you you and I are on the same page about the straight of four moves. I think that's the obvious way for the Iranians to get a whole lot of attention for themselves. Um, and, you know, if the Iranians, they're going to have to calculate this very precisely. Or I think they'll try to. If they, if they have a massive strike on America that causes loss of life, we will lay waste to them. I mean, we just will. Remember what happened after 9-11? I mean, we, we will be dropping bombs and it's going to get really, really ugly. They must know that. I think they know that, especially with Trump as president. But if they, you know, shoot down, if they shoot an oil tanker or two, and it causes a massive oil spill, are we going to respond with mass casual, you know, with mass casualty attacks against uh, their military? Uh, you know, they they they, they want to make it tricky for us. I mean, if they go after a senior U.S. figure, they're making it easy. Then it's just it's on. It's war, or something close to war. Um, but I don't think they're going to do that. <clears throat> John, um, whoops, John sent me the scene from Taken where Liam Neeson talks about his particular set of skills. Here we go. Brandon writes, Buck, Shields, hi, brother. Glad to have you back and producer Mark back in the Freedom Hut. Heard you last speaking in the podcast about the EFPs that have been shipped into Iraq via Iran. Scariest part of my deployment was the EFP. We could not stop them and we could not see them for the most part. 
We all knew back in 2006 they were being manufactured in Iran and brought to Iraq, not to mention we had to deal with Iranian insurgents as well, but I never remembered Bush condemning Iran for their involvement in killing our troops on a daily basis, several of which were members of my unit. It's nice to see Trump give a care about Americans and strike back after Iran killed one of our citizens. By the way, we are shoulder to shoulder with shields high in Virginia. We're not going to take this gun confiscation from the governor without a fight, nonviolently, of course. God bless you, brother. Airborne all the way. Well, Brandon, thank you for your service. God bless you. And look, I totally agree. With that. I think Trump, I think Trump is right to look at the situation and just say, uh, okay, no, this is not going to continue. This is not acceptable. Um, it's really kind of an outrage that it was able to continue as long as it did. Uh, Charlie writes, I take Zycam at the first sign of a cold and keep taking it. It either stops the cold or reduces the severity and longevity of it. Even if it were a placebo, who cares? Take it. It works. OSS, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. I might check out some Zycam, see if that will do something worthwhile and fun for me. I don't know. I mean, the, this this cold has been lingering. I'm, I'm at a week now with this thing, basically. It's, ooh, ooh, yuck. Oi. It's gross. I do not like the cold. Um, it's no fun. Although I have a friend who's got the flu and says that he was basically hallucinating for a day. So that's really no fun. Rachel writes, Buck, please do not listen to the woman who asks you not to do impressions anymore. Your impressions rock. Hello, what happened? Rachel, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and look, you know, it's different strokes for different folks here, but you got to you got to kind of keep it mixed, mix and match. As your producer, I must ban you from impressions until your voice is back to 100 percent. That's true. Yeah. My vocal cords are going to explode. Because if you lose them completely, I, I have then to host the show. show. Nobody wants right. that. Uh, that actually would be fun. I think a lot It'll of people, become a sports talk show. I was going to say, all of a sudden, if you want to know what's going on with the Rangers, the Islanders, the Mets, the Yanks, right? You got all that covered. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. So. Um, it's good that we have somebody in here who knows about the professional sports. I just these days I just don't really have the time. Yeah, you don't even know when the Super Bowl is. That is an accurate statement, which I should know that though, because it's like it's it's like I'm not even American if I don't know that. So Basically, I got to work on these things. Charles sent me a photo of himself with an adorable white French bulldog. Merry Christmas. Um, well, thank you very much. And uh, Charles writes, have to disagree with you on the Sicario trilogy. I love it. Uh, Taylor Sheridan, the screenwriter, is making a bid to become this generation's Elmore Leonard or Cormac McCarthy. Try his other work like Hell or High, Hell or High Water or Wind River, his best work. Peace. I liked Wind River. I thought Wind River was good. I will say that. Um, I did not see Hell or High Water. And the Sicario Day of the Soldado movie is garbage. So, I mean, I think that's just objective. I don't even think that's really an opinion, man. But that's where I'm at on that. Pamela, if you believe that Donald Trump wrote any one piece of a letter you so glowingly give him credit for, there's more than one reason you're no longer in government. <laughs> oh, I like this lady. You overlook it. First of all, government's full of mediocrity, Pamela. Yeah, 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 not, yeah, not particularly bright bulb. Uh, you overlook his inability to form more than third grade level sentence structure. This letter was written by Miller Javanka, <laughs> but it's in fashion nowadays. You better go down the ship than admit you're wrong. Pamela, do you think that Obama wrote his speeches? I'm just wondering. Do you think he wrote any? his letters or speeches i just you know let's, let's just start with that that's really so why would i think that trump wrote the letter just put this out there i think it's kind of funny though <laughs> that's why you're no longer in government yes because federal government service is where all the geniuses go to spend all their time um chesson i like that I, I like the spicy ones you know mixes it up chesson writes happy belated birthday buck i sleep safe and warm at night knowing that buck man's out spreading freedom crushing comedies uh crushing commies and comedies and delivering truckloads of buck slaps shields high beards of legend 
Chesson, your beard is in fact legendary, as is your excellent addition to Roll Call today. What do you have, Producer Mark? But do I sound like Snuffleupagus over here? Yeah, Buck Slaps. I'd sound a little bit like Snuffleupagus. I heard Buck Slaps, so I was going to play. No, I appreciate it. that. Yeah. yeah, you got to be a little faster on the draw there, Chief. I mean, I'm sorry. I got to move around a lot yeah. here. Yeah, that's that's right. And Producer Mark, it's like he's in the Matrix. He's around with computers. Yeah. He's got to do a lot of things. It's the only there. exercise I get is moving around the studio. I mean, there we go. Um, yeah, I think uh, crushing commies is what we do here. Crushing commies and eating fancy chocolate. And I'm all out of fancy chocolate. Uh, that's going to be the show for today, everybody. It's fantastic stuff. We'll be back Monday. It's going to be great next week, every day. Please do tell somebody. Download the Buck Sexton Show podcast on the iHeart app or on iTunes. Shields high.